Take your Bibles and turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, looking at verses 11 to 22 today. I would mention for those of you that have been praying for a hard freeze uh, to kill off the bugs and so forth, uh, please stop. Okay? Your prayers have been answered and we can move forward now, all right? Hebrews chapter 7. I trust that some of you, by the way, uh, that song we just sang, that, uh, that's one I referenced last week, that uh, Gracia Burnham's husband sang to her when they were in captivity uh, in the Philippines uh, by terrorists who were kept them for a long time, and he would sing that to her at night to calm her spirit and soul, so that's a great song. So if you're not familiar with it, you, might, you may want to get familiar with it. In Hebrews chapter 7... We're looking at a wonderful passage concerning Christ's priesthood. Some years ago, I played uh, some golf with uh, occasionally with some people from church. had fun doing that with them. And uh, they always beat me pretty much because I didn't play as much as them. But every once in a while, one of them would say, I need to buy a new set of golf clubs. And uh, they're going to spend a grand or more to buy a new set of golf clubs. They already were beating me by ten strokes anyway. Uh, and now some, for some reason their old clubs just didn't work anymore and they needed a new set. And so they bought them and usually maybe they increased their, their ability a little bit. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they beat me by 12 strokes now instead of 10. Uh, so they were thinking that they needed to replace their old golf clubs so that they could be better golfers. Maybe that helped a bit. I don't know. But we could use that same idea here with the passage of Scripture concerning Christ. Whether that worked with golfing or not, I don't know. But the whole context of chapter 7 of Hebrews is that there's a priesthood and there's a system of law that had governed the people of God throughout most of the Old Testament that must be replaced. It had come to, a, it had come to the time where Christ was going to replace that old system in order that we might have true redemption from sin and we might be able to draw near to God. And that is the, 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 the thrust of all of chapter 7. What complicates it and, and causes us struggles as we read it and interpret it, is he bases the priesthood of Christ on the Old Testament priesthood of Melchizedek. And as we've seen uh, previously, this is a minor character in the Old Testament, just, just found one time in the book of Genesis, and one little verse in the book of Psalms, and now suddenly he, he pops out as one of the main characters of the whole book of Hebrews, and Christ's priesthood is based on the, the order of Melchizedek. And we have to wonder, what's the big deal about this? Why, is, Christ, why is, is the author of Hebrews making a big deal about Christ's priesthood being after this order of this little known character, Melchizedek? What's, what is the big deal? And that is what he's talking about here. Uh, there's two reasons he's doing this. On the, on the negative side, the law and the priesthood that is based on that law, they go together uh, has to be replaced. Just like I mentioned, the golf clubs need to be replaced. Well, much more so, these, this system had to be replaced. And secondly, on the positive side, it had to be replaced because we could never draw near to God until it was. We were, we were held at a distance from God until the law and the Old Testament priesthood was replaced by a better system. That's the one brought in by Christ, and it's going to be after the order it says here, of Melchizedek. Now we want to talk about all that today, and I trust that even though this is a very complicated passage of Scripture, that when we're done you will see why it's put in the Bible and how it is helpful uh, to our lives. So we'll start off with the problem of the priesthood in chapter 11, chapter 7, verse 11. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood... 
7-Eleven. 7-Eleven. Thank you for asking. Now, for all the other of you that didn't hear that, seven, it sounds like kind of a gambling thing, doesn't it? 7-Eleven? I don't know. Uh, it's something okay. All right. Now, if perfection was through the uh, Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of, the, of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So we start off with this word perfection. Uh, he says, now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what's the problem with the Old Testament priesthood? Well, the implication here is not perfect. And perfection here, something is perfect if it does what it is designed to do perfectly. So if I have a watch and it keeps time perfectly, then that watch is perfected. It's perfect. Uh, it is perfect to the degree it keeps time accurately. The law could not do what it was designed to do perfectly. It could do something. We'll see what that is in a moment. But it could not perfect us. It could not allow us to come near to God. It could not save us. And so the law was imperfect and it had to be replaced. The priesthood was imperfect. A new one was needed. And so that is his point. And the reason this is true is that the priesthood could, could never, and get this, could never remove our sin. It could never remove our guilt. It only covered it up until the coming of Christ. Chapter 10, we'll talk about that. It covered it, it until Christ came and totally did something to get rid of our sin. But the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament laws couldn't do that. This last week, I think it was, somebody called me from outside the church. Uh, I don't really hardly know this person, but they called me. And they said they have a friend who um, is uh, guilt-ridden. They're just, their whole life has been guilt-ridden. And they, they're just under this uh, belief of unforgiveness and guilt. And, and they, they were talking to me about what we could do to help somebody like that. And uh, so their suggestion, I'm not sure altogether what this person's background is, but their suggestion is... If we could have something like a confessional booth here, where they could come to come in and I and, and talk to me, and I would be the one I guess they'd talk to, and uh, they would uh, they would confess their sins to me, and I would give them forgiveness. All right, that's exactly now we're, we're kind of some of you giggling about this. this. Is exactly what they did in the Old Testament. The priests were the go-between. Now, what's the problem with this system that this guy wanted me to do? And I didn't give her these, all these points, by the way, on the phone, but, but you're going to get them. Uh, here, here's, a, for, here's at least four different problems with what that lady was asking for. Number one, no individual, no man, no human can forgive sins. That's, that is so important to understand. I have no power to forgive anybody's sin. I can point them to the one that can, right? Jesus Christ. I can point them there. I can take them there. But I cannot forgive sin. I have no power to do that, no man does, including the Old Testament priests. They had no power to do that. Secondly, uh, with the priests in the Old Testament, the priests were a go-between between God and man. So the man, individuals in the Old Testament could not go directly to God for the forgiveness of sin. Doesn't mean they couldn't pray, but they could not have their sins forgiven in the Old Testament directly uh, to God. They could not go to God and get forgiveness. They had to go through a priest. And they brought their sacrifices, they brought their offerings to the priest. The priest offered them to God, so the priest was the go-between. 
Okay? We don't, what the whole thrust of the middle part of Hebrews is Christ is now our high priest. There are no other priests. He is our go between, between God and man. So we go directly to him. Thirdly, uh, if, if, if someone would come to me and ask me to forgive their sins, and I can't, that means they're still in their sins. You've gone to the wrong person. I can't forgive you. No priest can forgive you. Old Testament priests can't forgive you. Modern day priests can't forgive you. God only can forgive you because of Jesus Christ. And so if you expect an individual to forgive you because you confess sin, you're, you're in trouble. Because you can't, that can't happen. And finally, and this is one of the things he's talking about here, you have now, such a person has no access to God. You, the, one of the great themes of the book is that we can now draw near to God. We couldn't draw near to God in the Old Testament system because the priest stood between us and God. So we could draw near to a priest and we could go to the sacrificial system, but we still were separated from God. That's all been abolished because of Jesus Christ. This is the main thrust of the book of Hebrews. He has finished the sacrifice for us. It is done. He is the final high priest. We now go directly to God through Christ. And we have access to him. He's, he's in, inviting us to draw near. And the Old Testament priest could not do that. But Jesus can now, here's the second thing I want to talk about, the law's connection with the priesthood. We've been talking about the priesthood in chapter 7, verse 11. begins to talk about the connection between the priesthood and the law. And he says here, for now, in the, uh, now if the perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. And then he says in parentheses here, for on the basis of the people, of it, the people received the law. Which further, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to order of Melchizedek? And I'd be designated according to the order of Aaron. So he starts off by just giving a connection. The law and the priesthood are, are interwoven. You can't have a priesthood without a law. And you can't have a, a law without the priesthood. And so if you're going to change the priesthood, you're going to change the law. If you're going to change the law, you're going to change the priesthood. Now this is a, a detailed argument, but it's a very important argument. They're inseparable, get it? Then verse 12 he says this. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place also a change of the law. Now this is where the people who originally were receiving this book got their backs up. Because they loved the law. They loved the priesthood. It was their background. They're Jews. They'd grown up going to the temple. They'd grown up with sacrifices. They'd grown up with the the, the priest uh, interceding for them. Uh, they loved the law. Matter of fact, go back to the Old Testament. How often in the Psalms do the psalmist say, I love thy law, O Lord. Right? So we know the law is not bad. There's nothing wrong with the law itself. But with a change of priesthood, and Christ is changing the priesthood, the law must be changed. Some, there's, we're under something different. Now, get that? We're under something, a different system than the Old Testament Law. Uh, think of, if some of you know the history of the English people back in the Middle Ages and so forth, every time a, a monarch came to power, they imposed upon the people of the land their, their views, and a lot of their views were based upon what they, uh, their, their religious views. And they kept 
going back and forth between Catholics and Protestants, remember? And whoever was in power, it wasn't just that the, the law changed, because the law did change. As soon as a new monarch came on the scene, the laws changed. But there was very, it was also very rough, because the Catholics persecuted the Protestants, and the Protestants persecuted the Catholics. They didn't call her Bloody Mary because she liked her steak raw. People were killing one another based on religion. By the way, for those people that pick on Christianity based on those kind of things, and they, there's a good reason to pick on it, you know what? That is not the teaching of Jesus Christ. Whatever either side were doing, they were not following the teachings of Jesus Christ. And that's important to remember. There were, they were, both sides were wrong most of the time. But my point is, whenever they changed monarchs, they changed the law, and they, they changed how the system was being run. So it is with God's people, with the changing of the dynasty of the priesthood, there was a changing of the law as well, and also a massive change in how we live. And as we're going to see, our way of living now is vastly superior to anything under the law and in the Old Testament. The priest could not forgive sin, and the law could not give life. Something had to be done to free us from guilt and to, uh, and to give us access to God. Enter Jesus Christ. When Christ came, he brought a different priesthood, and with that different priesthood, he brought us access to God, and with access to God, he gave us the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, He transforms our lives. What a massive improvement, as He argues, over anything legalistic, anything law-based, even the law of God in the Old Testament. As perfect as it was, uh, we were not. And that leads me to the, a third issue I want to talk about. Why law then? If the law itself is not able to save us, not able to truly give us access to God then why in the world did he give us the law? What's the purpose of the law? Now let me give you very quickly four different reasons the law is given, four different purposes for the law. There's more than that, but here's, here's the big four, I think. Number one, and by the way, go back to Romans chapter 7 for these. We'll pick up a couple of verses in Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about the same thing. First of all, the law gave us, revealed to us the nature of God. The very moral nature of God. Verse 7 of Romans 7. What, then, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now his point is this. The very, the very moral nature of God is against coveting. Or lusting after stuff. Lusting after other people's stuff. That's sinful. Why is it sinful? Because it is contrary to the nature of God. And so when we look at the law, we see the nature of God, the moral nature of God. And the law reveals that to us. So it has a very important point. It shows us something of the nature and the purpose of God. Secondly, it, is a, it outwardly restrains sin. This is not found in Romans. Other places do that. But laws control systems. And laws, as we will see, cannot change our hearts, but laws control us. We, a lot of us don't like many of the laws of our land, especially if it messes up what we want to do. 
But where, where would we be without laws in our country? We would be in anarchy. We would be in chaos. We would be where the book of Judges is, where at the end it says every person did what was right in their own eyes, and it was an atrocity. If you don't believe how bad it can get, even in biblical times, read the book of Judges, but also read something else at the same time, because you're going to get depressed. These people were an absolute mess. They disobeyed the law, but the law itself, and laws in general, can give outside restraints. So God gave that to them for those purposes, to, to run their, their lives. Thirdly, and this is where we, it, we're not at Romans yet, but Galatians chapter 3 teaches us that the law came as our guardian to guard the people of Israel, to, to take care of them, to lead them until Christ came. Galatians three twenty three to 26, read that carefully. It's saying that there is a guardian, sometimes translated tutor, that, le- that guides us and leads us in the Old Testament until Christ came. But when Christ came, it was no longer necessary. But here's the big one. And this is Romans chapter 7. The law came to con- condemn us. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? The law came to condemn us. In verse 7, which I've already read, go down to verse 8. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. The very nature of law causes us to want to sin. When we're told not to do something, we want to do it by, by nature. That's our nature. And, it, and Paul said, that's what happened to me. As soon as I was told not to covet, what did I want to do? <laughs> I wanted to covet. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was a result in life, proved a result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He's very clear. There's nothing wrong with the Old Testament law. It's holy and righteous and good. It was given to us by God. The problem is us. We can't keep it. We can't obey it. And therefore, the law that tells us what to do when we don't do it stands up and condemns us and says, you are under condemnation because you have disobeyed the law of God. And so the very nature of the law itself is, is such that it points out our sinfulness and our need of a Savior from our sins. No one then can draw near to God on the basis of the law. They must draw near to God on the basis of Christ. And that takes us back to Hebrews now. And we look at the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Verses 15 to 22. uh, Some of his readers may not be convinced yet of the need for a new priesthood. And so he's going to show us why Christ's priesthood is superior to anything ever, that ever existed before, or even today. There's nothing comparable to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he's talking here about the Old Testament system. Why did he have to come after the order of Melchizedek instead of after the order of the Old Testament priest? He gives us three reasons. First of all, uh, it brought perfection. It brought perfection. Verse 11 said the law could not bring perfection. Verses 12 to 14, 
implies then that Christ's priesthood could bring perfection. I've already talked about that, so I'm going to go down to the next one. It gives us a better hope. Now, this is unique to the book of Hebrews. That there is something replacing the law that he calls a better hope. In verse 19, we'll drop to verse 19, and he says this, For the law made nothing perfect. The law is inadequate to perfect you. And on the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The uh, law could not perfect us because we are inadequate, but the law, but Christ could give us a better hope. The law tells us how inadequate we are. A number of years ago, I played a lot of tennis, and we played a lot, a lot of us at the church played tennis, and I thought it was pretty good. I beat everybody in the church. Most of them were in nursing homes. But, but I, 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 was, I was a SVC tennis champ. Okay? I thought I was pretty good. Then I played a relative of one of the families here who was a semi-pro. And I was like a three-year-old trying to play a real tennis player. It was a joke. I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't do a thing. I realize now I wasn't very good at all. I was really good against you, some of you. But I wasn't good at all against somebody who knew how to play tennis. And that's what the law does for us. You know, if, if I stack myself up against people, I might look good compared to some. If I stack myself up against Jesus Christ, I look bad. And before Jesus Christ came, the law did exactly the same thing. It stacked me up against the law of God and said, look, you're inadequate. You have no hope. There is no hope for you. But there's a better hope. And that is what he wants to talk about here. Now let's back up to uh, verses 15 and 16. When Christ came to replace the Old Testament system and the Old Testament priesthood, uh, he, he, was, he did so because he was superior. Why is he superior? Well, there, there it, several things. First of all, his qualifications. His qualifications makes him superior. Verse 15 says this, and this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, for who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Now, if you read through that quickly like I just did, doesn't mean a thing to you. So let me, let me help you mean, mean something to you, all right? The, the, what was the requirements for the Old Testament priests? They were all physical, and there were three of them. Number one, they had to be legitimately born. No illegitimate kids. Secondly, they had to be from the tribe of Levi and the, and the family of Aaron. And thirdly, they had to have no blemishes, no defects. There, uh, concerning the defects and the blemishes, uh, the Old Testament gives 142 physical blemishes that would eliminate or disqualify a priest. 142. In Leviticus 21 alone, you could not be a priest if you were blind, lame, disfigured in the face, deformed in any limb, have a broken foot or a hand, have any kind of scabs or any kind of eye blemishes, which would eliminate most of us. Just on those five or six. There's another 135. Therefore, you had to be perfectly without blemish physically. Okay? The qualification then were physical and not necessarily spiritual. What, it, what this means then, as we go back to the Old Testament, every offering brought had to be without blemish. If you brought a lamb 
to be sacrificed that had a sore on it or was lame or whatever, you could not bring it. The priest would disqualify it. It had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect as much as possible. But also the offerer, if that's a word, the priest had to be without blemish. Okay, that's, that's the system. Jesus did not meet any of these qualifications. Jesus, first of all, he was not illegitimately born, but the people thought he was. Have you ever thought about that? You know, when Mary, we know, we know that Mary was, was a, a child by the Holy Spirit. We know that. And she knew that. But do you think that flew very well with the people around her? You think the people in Bethlehem and the people in Galilee bought the, bought the argument that she was by child through God? All of Jesus' life, most people never thought about this, all of Jesus' life, he lived with the stigma of being illegitimate in a, in a culture that did not accept that. So Jesus, the people didn't think anyway, met those qualifications. Secondly, he was not from the tribe of Levi, and he was not from the family of Aaron. He was from the tribe of Judah and from the family of David. Therefore, he could not be a high priest under that system. And thirdly, he, didn't, he was not without physical blemishes after the cross. They beat him. They, 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 they put crowns on his head. They cut. They put nails in him. He would carry scars for the rest of, we think, forever, especially in his hands and his side, that would disqualify him from being a priest. Jesus was not qualified to be a high priest according to the Old Testament system. So what qualifies Jesus to be our high priest? Verse 16, look at that term, underline it three times in four different colors, or the power of an indestructible life. What does that mean? Death could not defeat Jesus. His, his qualifications as he defeated death. They could kill him, and they did, but the grave could not hold him. The tomb is empty. He has an indestructible life, but not only has he resurrected from the dead, which he did. That's part of our gospel message, right? He died for our sin. He resurrected for us. Not only is he resurrected, but he lives now. He's indestructible. If he wasn't alive now, nothing we're talking about in Hebrews matters. Because he ever lives to, uh, verse 25, look at that. Therefore, he, he is also able to save forever those who draw near. He lives now to intercede for us. If he was not alive, we are in our sins. His qualification, not the Old Testament priest qualifications. The qualification is the resurrection indestructible life. He forever lives. Secondly, another qualification is duration. Verse 17, for it's attested of him that you're a, a, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Throughout the centuries, hundreds of high priests came and went. Hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of priests came and went. They all died. But Jesus says, uh, priesthood endures forever because he is after the order of Melchizedek and he never dies. He has an indestructible life. And thirdly, power. He has power they didn't have. Verse 18, for on the other hand, there's a setting side of a former commandment because of its weakness 
and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Let's stop there. Those are fighting words to the Jews. The law is weak. The law is useless. That's those, the Jews wouldn't have bought that. They're struggling. These people, these original readers, are struggling. They, they had grown used to a system they wanted to go back to. A system of law and a system of priesthood and a system, system of sacrifices and a system of temple worship. Christ replaced all of that. They didn't like it so much. They were struggling. That's part of the problem in, in, with the people here. And we get that way too, by the way. We get all fixated in our traditions and our way of living, the way we grew up and whatever, and we tend to want to go back to that, even if it's inferior. So Christ calls us on here at this point and says that he, is, he, is, the, the, he had to replace these things because they were weak and they were useless and the law could make nothing perfect, but on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Power that is here. A number of years ago, Marsh and I went to Great Britain, to England, and uh, everybody said you have to go to, Lon- to, the, to the palace there in London and see the changing of the guard. And so we felt obligated to go see the changing of the guard. And so we went there and we saw the changing of the guard. I think it's hard to even remember, to tell you the truth. I wasn't that impressed. But what happens here is a, is a, a group, a, a troop of soldiers who are guarding the palace are, are replaced at certain times by another troop of soldiers who are almost identical, wearing the same outfits, you know, and uh, look, you couldn't tell at a distance the difference between them. One almost identical group replaced the other, and that's the changing of the guard. Well, that's, I, that's pretty cool, I guess, uh, but I, in my sinister nature, I guess, something happened about the same time that I do remember, the changing of the garbage. <laughs> at almost the same time they changed the guard, the garbage truck showed up, and took out the old garbage and replaced the containers with new containers. And I thought that's a better illustration of what we're doing here. Okay? I don't know about the changing of the garbage. Changing of the garbage works. The Old Testament system was not garbage, but it was useless to save us. It had to be replaced. And so the old was taken out and the new was brought in so that we have what? A better hope which he's going to flesh out later. and It just touches it here and fleshes it out later. And we have the ability now to draw near to God because of the change, of the power that is there. Now, looking again at verse 18, they're setting aside of the former commandment, which is weakness. Verse, verse, so in other words, that's the law. So he's setting aside the law. We're going to look at this later. But an awful lot of Christians today want to be under law. Some Christian systems, theological systems, say we're still under the Old Testament law. Hebrews says, no way. You're not under the Old Testament law. You're under a whole different system of grace. And we, you have a system of hope that they did not have. And you have a different high priest, which is Christ. But the law is being replaced. He said that same thing in verse 12. For where there's a... When the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of the law also. Now why is that so important? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, the law cannot make you perfect. That's what he says here. No matter how good the law is, it cannot perfect you. And so the law has some purposes, but it can't change your life and it can't give you salvation. 
Let's say you went boating in Lake Springfield. Not today, uh, but sometime this summer. And you're out there in your boat, and I think there's laws out there. You're not allowed to jump out of your boat and go swimming. You're not supposed to do that. So, yeah, really. And uh, so, unless you're at the beach. So you're out, there at, you're out there in the lake, and you decide you're going to break the law, and you're going to jump in the lake, and you're going to swim. Okay? But then you get tired, and you start to flounder, and you're about to go under. And your friend in the boat pulls out the manual he has in his boat, that has the laws and regulations of the lake. And you're there just about to die. And he begins reading section 4, article 3. Thou shalt not jump into the lake and swim. And you start going on and on about the laws. You shouldn't even be in there, buddy. He's dying. What do you go- he doesn't need the regulations. He doesn't need the law. He needs a lifeline, right? The law says you're dying. You're floundering. You're going under. It proves it to you time and time again. What you need is not regulations. You need a lifeline. That lifeline is Jesus. He's a high priest. He brings the hope. He enables us to draw near to God. There's a second reason here that I wanted to mention. And that is because... I can't find it. Okay. Let's forget it. It's, it's in there. I probably already said it. I just forgot what it was. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Okay. Drop down to verse 20 to 22. Oh, quit laughing at me. Would somebody take this man out? Okay. I'll give you three, three reasons why Christ's priesthood is superior. Number one, it brought, brought perfection. The law couldn't do that. Number two, it brought a better hope. There's no hope in the law, only despair. But he brought a better hope. Third, he brings a better covenant. Verse 20 to 22, he starts talking about this covenant. He says, And inasmuch as is not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are priests forever. So much that more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Could he have said it any more complicatedly than that? Right? If you're reading this for the first time this morning, you're scratching your head and saying, Wow, what in the world is he trying to say? Why is this in the Bible? I mean, this is hard stuff, it seems like to me. Let's try to uncomplicate it a little bit. He's saying, first of all, that the Old Testament system was temporary. Christ is the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And again, this is very helpful. A lot of people who want to be under the law, again, theological systems that want to be under the law, or people who are legalistic who want to be under the law, uh, they don't realize that the law was never meant to be permanent. It's not a permanent system. There was no law till Moses. That meant from the Garden of Eden through Abraham through Joseph, all these people, up to the Exodus, and a little after the Exodus, never had the Old Testament law. It was not in place. Was the moral law of God there? Yes. God hasn't changed. There's always right and wrong based upon God. But the Old Testament system, including the priesthood, the sacrifices, and all that went with it, 
That was not there before Moses in 1400 B.C. Then, it, then the Old Testament system began, 1400 B.C. approximately, and it ended at, at the time of Pentecost uh, in chapter 2 of Acts. When the law is no longer in place, Jesus has died, Jesus has resurrected, Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come, and the law has been removed from our system of governance. We're no longer under the law. Paul writes about that in Romans. He writes about it in Galatians. The Hebrew author of Hebrews writes about it here. Why anybody wants to be under the law, I have no idea. But I'll be honest with you, there's very solid intellectual theologians that insist we are under the law. Don't listen to them. Read Hebrews instead. We're not under the law. We're under the hope of Christ. We're under a new covenant, not an old covenant. Now, we're not used to this word covenant. It basically means a contract, but maybe a little more intense. But it's basically under the Old Testament system, God had an agreement with Israel. It was a conditional agreement, a conditional con- contract, read that Le- Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which said this, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And they, they went up on the mountains and they wrote these out. By the way, very interesting, just last week, I think, some, it's been found a little piece of lead uh, plaque up on that mountain where they were at that had a little piece of the curse there, cursed at you, blah, 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 just a little piece showing that they had actually wrote these things out. That's very interesting. Modern archaeology has shown the, the truth of what happened there. Not that we needed that, but it's interesting to note. They went up on the mountain and they wrote out all the curses and all the blessings. What did Israel ultimately do? Well, they sinned. They rebelled. What happened? They were cursed, right? You and I would be in the same situation if, we, if, if our eternal life and our walk with God is based upon us, we are cursed because we have no hope. But the best person in this room is still an awful sinner in the face of God. But Christ has brought in a new covenant that has a totally different set of conditions. And that's going to be fleshed out in chapter 8 that we'll get to in a few weeks. But here we are, I want to notice this part here in verse 22. It says, So much more also Christ has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Christ is our guarantee. How do we know we have a new covenant? How do we know that God is now working with us on the basis of grace and not on the basis of law? How do we know we should be living our lives on the basis of grace and not on the basis of law? Because Christ has guaranteed us a better covenant and he is the promise. He is the oath. See that word two or three times? He is the oath. He is the promise. And Christ will never renege on his promises. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that you find the word covenant, but it'll be here 17 times. No other book of the New Testament uses the word covenant over three times, and most of them never use it at all. This is a particular doctrine found in the book, primarily the book of Hebrews. It's a big one, and I'm looking forward to going through that with you very soon. But we're no longer under that old covenant. We're under a new covenant. So put it all together. 
the Old Covenant of law and the Old Covenant of, of Old Testament priesthood could not save us because we are too inadequate. Therefore, we need a new covenant based purely on the righteous acts of Jesus Christ, not on our own. And Christ has come to give that to us. So that we might what? Not only be forgiven, but we now can draw near to God. Something they could could never do. Christ is our guarantee. He's our promise. I just read this last week that uh, Michelangelo, you know Michelangelo? Not not the turtle. uh, The... uh, the, the famous sculptor and artist. Michelangelo, as we know, did a lot of wonderful works that he's famous for. But I didn't know this. There's a gallery in Italy somewhere that is filled with all the projects he started and never finished. I didn't know that. He was a starter and not a finisher. So for some of you students that can't get your homework done, Michelangelo couldn't either. But you're not Michelangelo, so don't, don't uh, take any hope in that. Look, the best of the best of the artists didn't always finish his projects. But the guarantee we have is that Jesus did. It is finished. And we have hope in Christ. He finished it. He's our guarantee. He's our promise. We have a lot to thank for. be thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for Jesus Christ. That he is our guarantee. He's our hope. He's everything. Thank you, Lord, for finishing what you started. That you saved us from our sins. Lord, for all who draw near to you, you will, you will accept them because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.